Hello and welcome to the Irish Gerontological Society podcast. Uh, today we have Professor Rosanne Kenny, uh, the President of the IGS. Welcome Rosanne. Hi, thank you. Uh, today's episode we're going to touch on Rosanne's book which has come out recently, Age Proof. Uh, but before we get into that, Rosanne, we might just, I'd like to ask a few questions a bit more about yourself and I suppose how you got into this end of your work. Um, something we're trying to ask most of our guests on the podcast is why older persons or I suppose at what point they realized they wanted to work more in geriatrics or gerontology. Sure. Well, when I was a young junior doctor, I went to London to train in medicine generally, mm-hmm. probably with a view to doing cardiology or neurology. And um, during my training rotations in the Hammersmith Hospital, I did geriatric medicine, and I absolutely loved it. I suppose what I loved most about it was the multidisciplinary nature of the specialty, and a lot of specialties have now changed from being siloed into much more multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, that was not the case at all. And geriatrics was almost exclusively the only multidisciplinary um, specialty, maybe with some exceptions like rheumatology. So I loved that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed older patients. I loved their life course narrative and how that played into what one was dealing with as a doctor acutely in the hospital because I was working in a hospital, obviously. Um, and I enjoyed the fact that uh, multimorbidity was the norm. Yeah. And that presented its own complexities and challenges. So all of those things I, I, I actually found enjoyable and challenging. Mm-hmm. And they persuaded me to get involved more in medicine uh, of people as they got older. And then when I looked at it in more detail, I saw how little research there was in mm-hmm. this whole area. Now we're talking 30 plus years ago, and there was very little interest in this area. It was very much a Cinderella specialty. Um, and. I found that uh, challenging in a positive way. Uh, it certainly didn't put me off. So they're kind of my reasons for going into it. And I've never regretted it, not for a moment. No, it's, very, it's always really interesting to see, I suppose, what, what brought people in a certain direction or maybe setting off. You might have thought that's where you're going to end up. And I suppose as far as your most maybe notable and famous in Ireland and internationally for your work in Tilda, as the original PI of that longitudinal study in Ireland. Uh, you've kind of touched on it already in your first answer there that you liked the narrative of the life story and that kind of longer lens at how people age over time. Um, but what was it in particular that I suppose got you involved in that project? Actually, I was probably best known initially for my work in cardiovascular medicine because yeah. my, my, my thesis was on, I did four years of, of research in cardiology and the area I was looking at was physiological changes mm-hmm. in, 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 in response to orthostatics, orthostatic change, etc. And it was during that that I became interested in syncope, obviously. Yeah. And we were the first to describe the head up tilt study, la 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 la. And I continue to do that. That's my other hat. I wear two hats. Um, and I do that for all age groups. But what's happened is they've merged. So my two mm-hmm. hats are now one big purple hat because because the the discoveries around 
the physiological responses to orthostasis and how they manifest in diseases particularly and symptoms such as syncope, that, that, they, that they're actually very closely aligned with biological aging in, in mm -hmm. many ways. It's just the prevalence of the different causes that are, that are different. So they've now, they've aligned and I've taken a lot of those learnings um, that we gleaned from physiological measures of cardiovascular status into the TILDA study. Um, and, and that's actually what's made TILDA so unique in the kind of hierarchy of these longitudinal studies that Ireland does um, some very novel measures that haven't been used in other longitudinal studies, but are starting to be replicated. And even the, the authors of or the PIs for, for the Framingham study at the moment, they're very, very wonderful longitudinal study which has really set the benchmark for many cardiovascular longitudinal studies. They've been in touch with us and are replicating our measures of active standing and the technologies that we've used. So, so it, it's been fantastic from a national perspective that mm. we've had that level of outreach internationally because of the metrics that we, we use for looking at physiological ageing and biological ageing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's brilliant. Um, and I suppose we, we primarily thought we'd have this episode today because I suppose your role within the IGS for members to get to know you a bit more as our current president. And the other thing was, I suppose, around your book, which is doing absolutely brilliantly from <laughs> everything I can see publicly and privately. And I think what's really interesting, I've, I've mentioned to a few people I was going to be talking to today about the book. And I had a great mixture of people who maybe are health professionals saying, oh, yeah, I've read it too. Oh, my mum read it and she loved it. So it seems to be hitting both the kind of sciencey medical people and also so many people who are just interested in ageing. And it, I think it's a testament to how accessible it is and how it's written that it's actually, I actually got an audio book. It's very easy to listen to as well, for whatever it's worth. Uh, so I suppose what you said at the start of the book, it was, You've been given this education piece for years and decided to put it together in a book. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, how did you find actually gathering it all into that more of a book format and preparing what is quite complex science information into something everyone can read? Well, it was a great learning experience for me. I've written a number of books, but they've all been for a medical science yes. community. So I had to learn as well. And also when I did the first... Um, version and sent it to the my agent you know he liked it a lot etc but he said i need more of you i need you to come out of the pages <laughs> and that is so hard to do and of course it's exactly the opposite to what you do as a scientist yeah. or a researcher i mean you, you don't personalize anything and you ignore anecdotes whatever so i that i really really struggled i did struggle with that um but then but then as i kind of got more involved with that I was, it was almost like releasing a valve. I enjoyed sharing what I had felt, like when I described that first lecture I gave for the GAA, yeah. you know, I remember how momentous that was for me. And mm -hmm. I remember driving home on that really wet Monday night. It was a terrible night um, from the middle of Ireland where I'd given the talk on my own in the car and thinking that was the most enjoyable, you know, professional evening I have ever had. I absolutely loved it. And I suppose that was a combination of just the audience, some of whom said they had never been at a lecture before. Yeah. And my having to pitch it 
to capture that, to ensure that I kept people engaged. But it was just the whole buzz. There was the festival that we shared, you know, that the two cups, the two All-Ireland Cups, the football and hurling were there. And they, and it was, it was doing it with the GAA. And it was the experience of that wonderful national organisation. I mean, what a better federal infrastructure do we have on the island of Ireland than that and, and community than that. And it was that whole experience that brought me that, you know, just brought me to a place that I hadn't experienced before after giving a lecture. And I'd given other public lectures, yeah. but usually, no, exclusively in um, for a like Trinity here or other universities or whatever, never in a hotel ballroom, yeah. you know, that was usually used for weddings or whatever. Um, um, uh, yeah, so I, I loved that. So, um, so, so, so it was a great learning experience for me as well doing the book. But I have to say, you know, like I've started to kind of sketch out my second one, my next oh, book, because I because I kind of got I've got the bug, and I I'm enjoying the communication of science. I'm really enjoying it actually, and I'm loving the feedback and the fun and the interaction, um, and. It's a very great pity that it's taken me so long to come to the table with respect to that. But I'm enjoying this new phase very much. Yeah, that's brilliant. And uh, yeah, I even seen you on, I think it was morning, Good Morning Ireland, the TV3 thing. It was yeah. having a go with that. And I was like, gosh, you're, you're everywhere now. And whereas you would have been prolific, say, in like healthcare, science, medicine. But then seeing you on the morning TV was a, <laughs> you made it then at that point. Uh, but no, fair play to you. And, I suppose the the book obviously it it covers a huge amount of themes around aging. Yeah. And again, presumably, well, I don't know who listens to this podcast. It could be members of the public. It could be people in healthcare. Uh, a lot of people who are picking it up say my mom and her age group or people who are telling me it is they're approaching aging with a bit of a fear of what's coming next. And what's quite positive with the book, it's all about I suppose. Uh, the science and behaviours and practices that can help you age well and reduce the risk of more complicated things. Um, just, I suppose, if, you, if someone was picking up the book, how would you describe what they can expect in it? Well, first of all, we've no magic no. cure for ageing. But, but the policy perspective, and this has been the, the mantra for some period of time now, is that we're trying to compress morbidities, that's diseases, illnesses, to compress the period of time that, that of disability and, and diseases which um, in, influence disability as much as possible at the end of life. So instead of having, as we do today, 20% mm -hmm. of our lifetime is spent with some disability, we compress right that right, right down to maybe the last year of life or something. So that is feasible. That is possible if we embrace life behavioural and lifestyle changes early enough. And everything that I've outlined is consistent with that, but, but evidence-based. And what I've tried to do in the book, very much so, mm -hmm. is take what we do in a science community and provide evidence. And where the evidence isn't strong or is contentious or appears from observation to be very plausible, hypothetically, mm -hmm. then explain that and to contextualize it, though, in the context of 
what data we have at the moment. You know, this looks good, it looks strong, mm -hmm. it's very plausible biologically, but there have not been enough of randomized controlled trials for me to say definitively this really does work. Mm -hmm. So I, I've, I've given that sort of a flavor to it as well. Um, and actually one of the things that, that kind of triggered that was um, a friend in the States, when I told her I was writing this, she said, oh, you have to read. Now, she's not in, in, in medicine. She's, she's, she's into drama, etc. But she said, you have to read this brilliant book. It's a New York number one bestseller, New York Times bestseller. So she sent me the book and I started it and I got, you know, I trudged through the first, I'd say one fifth of it. Mm -hmm. But it was so peppered with inaccuracies, inaccuracy in terms of the science mm -hmm. and, and statements which sounded definitive, but I knew were not at all, that I, I couldn't finish it. I really just couldn't finish it. But the next thing was for me, like, how gullible are people? And I just must not go there. I was absolutely determined not to go there. So yeah. what I've said in the book is evidence-based. What I'd love to get out there, Adele, to be honest, mm -hmm. is to, to get a younger community reading it, because there's no question, the earlier, the better. Yeah. But it's never too late. Yeah. You know, it's never too late to start. And there, biologically, we know that's the case. But the earlier you start, the much better chances you have of, of compressing down disability towards that just last little chapter. And the younger people are much more open today now to, to, to adopting all of these changes. But I think what they mightn't have realized, everyone knows about physical activity, physical exercise, how important that is. Diet, yeah, but, but I find when I'm chatting to young people about it, when I say young, I'm talking about students here in college mostly and my own two boys, you know, they kind of get the diet thing, absolutely, but it's not necessarily for now and it's okay for me to have pizzas and takeaways every couple of nights. Cause, but, you know, so I just, so there's that. And then I think they're completely not aware of the importance of always having a purpose and how important your friends are and the quality of friendships and social engagement and relationships, etc. So, and having things out with, out with work. I'm the worst, my own worst enemy on this, but you know, how important creativity is and variety in, in life and not just the one mainstream. So, and that they, that there's evident biological evidence for for those factors decelerating, slowing down the aging process. I know that people weren't aware of that before now. So, so I, I would just really like to get that into, mm -hmm. into an even younger community because all of our work in Tilda is showing and my colleague Cahill McCrory here in, in Tilda leads so much on that, that the life course and your early life experiences and disadvantage in early life, but also health behaviors in early life are very important for determining your aging process. And I suppose what struck me there in defense of the overambitious young people, like culturally, the message still is to work hard, you know, like deliver results, don't go home in the evening, last person to leave the office. And I think there is that sense that your health and your aging is way down the line and it's a problem of many years ahead. Um, so it's quite interesting to think about it for much younger people to kind of this was carve out their hobbies, their interests, their self, their relationships, because uh, it definitely goes against the mold in a lot of parts. But, of you know, you know, organizations, yeah. institutions need to be aware, first of all, that they have a responsibility to do this. But secondly, people will work much better 
Mm. if they have a fun environment to work in. And that includes all of the things I'm talking about. Yeah. Creativity, variety, social engagement. Some groups are much better than others at ensuring that. Mm-hmm. You know, but a happy a happy environment is a happy workforce and a productive workforce crudely. So it's a win win for everybody if we get it right. In the in the in the health sector because, yeah, you know, my other half is I work in the hospital, obviously. I don't think we're good at that. I no. don't think we're good at, you know, ensuring our workforce and our community are happy mm-hmm. and, and that they have an opportunity to share their problems and issues. And we're very much inclined to be a blame society, mm-hmm. you know, and we're therefore very protective about everything and almost scared and anxious about mistakes instead of embracing mistakes as a learning opportunity for all and just creating a culture where mistakes happen. 10% of health-related deaths in the U.S. are because of mistakes, because of health errors. But, you know, we don't get those percentages in other industry like aviation industry, Matthew. Syed's fantastic book on this. So let's learn from from all of that and have less of of a fear culture in the health sector and much more of a learning, continuous change, but also a happy work environment culture and opportunities to for staff to share issues and manage issues rather than feeling under threat all of the time. Yeah. Great. Um, so I did, I asked her in for a couple of questions, um, just loosely on. Okay. <laughs> uh, so probably people again trying to look for a way out, but the whole concept of genetics and aging of, you know, say lifestyle and behaviors, everything is one thing, but ultimately what if your genetics are just like my mother, my grandmother, didn't age well, so I won't. Is there how much so, does so, I get into it? And, and I mean, I think this was if I'm if I'm kind of listening to the feedback that I get. This is yeah. the most surprising fact. There's only twenty, or at the very most, thirty percent of yeah. our aging process is determined by fixed genes, and we've twenty-five mm-hmm. to thirty thousand genes which determine that. So at the wor- at the you know at the worst case scenario. That's mm-hmm. how much your genes will influence things. The rest are all of the environmental stuff we've been talking about that can influence biological aging. Okay, so that's no more genetics excuse then? No or, excuse. <laughs> no excuses. Uh, another thing is that there's a, bit, a lot of questions around age and happiness, and it probably fits into maybe some of the fears of older age, but is there a correlation between age and happiness? You know, and, and, and again, this comes from the TILDA study, there is a direct correlation between age and quality of life, which is another measure of happiness. Mm-hmm. And quality of life gets better and continues to rise for about 30 years after the age of 50 in the TILDA study. It's very, very clear. And then it gradually starts to drop off. But okay. it only, only starts to drop off because of physical illnesses. Yeah. And and it only reaches the level of quality of life at age 50 for most people when they're in their early 80s, mid 80s. But again, it's it's driven. I'm talking about me averages now. Obviously, it's not the same for everybody because there are some people who it continues to get better and better with even up to 90 and beyond. Mm -hmm. Okay, And others who fall off slightly earlier in their 70s. 
but it's nearly always driven by physical or, or mental illnesses um, to a lesser degree. Um, so again, coming back to what we said, if we can compress those years to the very end, the quality yeah. of life will just get better. And, and when I when we produced the paper from the Tilda study on quality of life and showed that, and I remember being interviewed on morning radio, this is a couple of years ago now, and somebody texted me, who's a retired person who was a friend of my mother's, and he said, thanks be to God, somebody's speaking sensibly, he said, I've never had it better, and nobody, I, he said, I, I can't say that because no one will believe me, and now you tell me that everybody else is feeling that as well, this is great. So, so I think as people get older, they, they're aware that, you know, mm-hmm. they've left, they've, there are less worries. Yeah. There's less pressure. You don't have what you just described to me, this performance pressure where you have to keep getting on and getting on and doing, you, you know, that, 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 that additional pressure abates or attenuates. So that, so you've got more time to reflect and to think. And also it, there's loads of work out there to show that as you get older, you get less stressed. Yeah. Compared to younger cohorts nowadays, younger younger people experience much more stress than than older persons. And wisdom is a is a is a great modifier of stress and and worry. And of course, accumulated wisdom comes with with age. So there are lots of reasons why life gets better, and 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 I think awareness of that will help all generations to mm-hmm. actually have a better better quality of life. Again, uplifting, uplifting message. Yeah. Uh, I suppose another point is around the increase in life expectancy. And I I think there's a second discussion around what happens when people do live longer and obviously when society becomes older overall and which is what's happening internationally. Uh, But as far as life expectancy, is it as good as it's going to be? Any perceptions we might live longer and older? over the coming years so so in the main the linear relationship between um time mm-hmm. lapses and chronological aging seems to be continuing in most countries mm-hmm. it's actually flattened out in the us and the uk and some other countries mm-hmm. and the reasons behind that in the us they're the opioid deaths, believe it or not, in young people that have considerably attenuated the overall lifespan epidemiological data now. And in the UK, it's been attributed to a few things. Michael Marmot, obviously, and his group feel very strongly that it's related to inequalities, social inequalities, and mm-hmm. a number of people believe that to be the case. And of course, that is a fact that social inequalities have become much worse in the UK laterally. But there, there might be other issues around dementia prevalence or flu illness in the past, which, which might be driving it uh, now. Obviously, coronavirus is going to change all of what I'm about to say. But, but with respect to your bigger question, mm-hmm. we have an epidemic of obesity and diabetes mm-hmm. and depression in younger cohorts and middle age. And I don't know, nobody knows, what that will do to that linear relationship at a global level. So it's not possible to accurately predict at the moment. 
But estimates are, we well, we know it's physically possible to live to your late 120s. Jean-Marie Calmont did that. that. We know that. Yeah. And we know that the predictions are that, you know, girls particularly born today, you know, that 40% or possibly more will live to 150 or more if the linear extension continues. And they're, they're, they're not pie-in-the-sky statistics, you know, they're feasible. Um, but again, as I don't know what obesity and diabetes are going to do that or the huge socioeconomic disparities that we're not just seeing in the UK, but, you know, we're experiencing them everywhere where yeah. the, the world's wealth is being held by a very small uh, number of, of people. Yeah, and I suppose you, you touched on the socioeconomic impacts on ageing and, I suppose, longevity. Uh, within Ireland, is there much of a... A variation between, say, rural, rural Ireland, urban, city centre, old um, ageing, like as far as outcomes, disease. Um, so you would no. presume, no, you presume we're no. balance. There's not, we thought there'd be an awful lot more. Yeah. And, you know, ballpark, you know, there's some minor variations, but loneliness is, is we thought it would be more marked in, in rural Ireland. It's not, mm. it's actually more common in the city. Yeah. Um, uh, for example, um, health metrics are pretty much pretty much the same. Um, people who have been brought up on a farm and are now older actually, yeah. by and large, have better bone health and musculoskeletal health. Um, and that could be better milk <laughs> access yeah. in childhood or something like that. Um, we're not sure. We're just con making um, uh, uh, suppositions. Certainly, I can tell you that across the board, education is a big driver mm -hmm. for good health. And if we got education right, um, th then we would, we would pretty much get good health right for, at a population level. And the other big thing, which comes out all the time when we're looking at all of these epigenetic markers of biological aging and stuff, is smoking. Current mm -hmm. smoking is so bad. There's nothing that drives accelerated aging more than current smoking, much more so than physical activity or even BMI yeah. or anything. So current smoking status is really bad. But education um, and, and lower socioeconomic status also influence, you know, life course aging and lifespan. And there are things that as a society we can do, you know, we can do something about. We can help the individual. It's very difficult for the individual to, to do that, but it requires yeah. long-term vision from government, doesn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, educating everybody so f for the purposes of having a better, healthier society long term and compressing disease morbidity, you know, over the next 50, 100 years, that'll save our economy so much money. Mm -hmm. But our politicians will have come and gone. So uh, we, we really need altruistic politicians yeah. to embrace this. I know in Finland, they are now adopting policy changes with that long-term trajectory. And I would love to see our uh, policymakers, particularly in the Department of Health and the Departments of Education, getting together and replicating mm -hmm. the strategy that they're employing in Finland to, to have this long-term lens on a better society. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I suppose something like your, the name of your book is Age Proof. So that in itself is quite positive and sounds quite robust and resilient as a term. Um, I suppose ageism itself, even 
at the individual level, like even I've read people who are ageist about themselves or undermine their ability because of their age has such an adverse impact on their health and disability and whatnot. Um, I suppose, where do you think society-wise, I, th I think that Ireland got an age-positive country of the year, maybe two years ago or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, that's great. It's very positive. But how do you think we're doing as a society with being age-positive? And then I suppose, what, how do you think we're doing it at an individual level as well? Well, I'm glad we're talking an awful lot more as a society and with our media about yeah. ageism. Yeah. And aging perceptions yeah. and that people are beginning to buy into the science mm -hmm. that you are as young as you feel. Yeah. Which, which I love. I just yeah. love that. Um, so that's so people are buying into that um, uh, more and more. Uh, unfortunately, I think the pandemic was interesting in this context. It did unmask, didn't it? Mm. Quite a lot of ageism initially. But the Irish Gerontological Society, particularly our executive and members, were very vocal about this at the time, mm. crit critiquing, you know, the, the chronological age cutoff. In other words, the number 70, etc. Yeah. The implications for people, almost that, oh, because you've reached the age of 70, you're no longer of any value to society anyway. So it's better if you stay indoors because, you know, it's not going to affect anyone. It's not going to make any difference to society, etc., etc. You know, well, that was the implicit undercurrent yeah. by, by, by introducing that sort of um, message, um, um, you know, hooked on chronology and mm -hmm. a number. So, but, and then at the time, I don't know if you remember, Adel, but in the beginning, they were citing a person's age who had died, mm -hmm. the fact that they were in a nursing home, and then stating with multiple, you know, comorbidities or number of diseases or disorders, etc. I mean, how in God's name does that matter? Somebody has yeah. died from COVID. It's irrelevant, the rest. And it's certainly not pertinent to the, to the public. So, so, but I think, I think that bit by bit, the media kind of just woke up to that and policymakers to mm -hmm. the inappropriateness of all of that. Like you wouldn't describe it um, in the context of race. That would never happen. Yeah. Or sex, that would never happen. But somehow with age, it was okay. So we've a long way to go yet, but I think we've come some way. I'm delighted we've come some way. Mm -hmm. And I think we, you know, we'll continue to champion. There are a lot of other things. There are, there are you know, there are age policies that, that continuously mention age or refer to age or are based on age that, that need to be changed. But, but, but it's not just a simple matter of taking age away because the whole business model and infrastructure is predicated on that. You know, we really need to have a good look at that mm -hmm. and institutions need to look at what they're doing and just, just work around that just as we have with, with sexism and, yeah. you know, how, how we've changed the role of women in our workforce and our society over the last number of years. Now we have to do the same with age. Yeah, for sure. Um, God, we, could, we could talk all day about these things. <laughs> we won't get pretty uh, passionate. Uh, so second last question. If you were running the country tomorrow, Ireland, uh, first three things you would do, I suppose, in the line of making life better for older people or as we age, like three big changes you would make. I would definitely try to ensure education for all. I think education is really important. Mm -hmm. And I'm acutely aware 
that so, there are cohorts in our country. I work in James's, very near the hospital, yeah. where um, families struggle, particularly single parent families, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. And I would really try and facilitate those families as much as possible so that, so that education becomes part of their mantra and mm-hmm. may, is, is, is easily made easy for them. Yeah. And also ensure that no children are below the poverty line, no matter what, that mm-hmm. the essentials are available to children, particularly to children. Um, and whatever we've got to do to modify our societies, and we know the hotspots, we know mm-hmm. the, the areas where this is most required. So that's what I would mostly like to focus on. That all feeds into a healthy aging. Yeah. And, and, and there's a great project, actually, called Gen to Gen that I talk about in the book, which Teresa Seaman, who's one of our collaborators here in, in, in Tilda, established in the U.S., where retirees work with, as mentors, to younger cohorts, younger kids in schools and that, they're remunerated for it. It's a nominal fee, but, mm-hmm. and they're also trained um, to, to help educate and to work with youngsters in terms of education. Because, you know, not all of us come from families with third level education or yeah. even with professional skill sets, you know, you, you, um, such as, you know, plumbing or electricians or that that can be handed down. We're, we don't all have that background available to us in the home. So what Gen to Gen does is actually provide that infrastructure for disadvantaged younger children as part of their education practice. And it's been hugely successful. And it's been hugely successful at an intergenerational level. The kids get great value from it. And the results are remarkable. But the, those who are giving the mentoring, have it's just wonderful for them. It's a new learning experience, but it's also a social engagement experience. And they're being recognized and gives them a purpose, etc. So it seems like a win-win. I would introduce Jen to Jen in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, and it's exactly what you're talking there, that idea that wisdom with age rather than yeah. Yeah. the absolute the value that comes yeah. with age and years behind you. Um, no, so that's great. Um, you mentioned a second book. I don't know if you want to touch any of your plans or keep it as it under the hat. No, I need to. Uh, I need to. Um... Uh, no, no. I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I've sketched it, and I'll come back and do another podcast on it again. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, it might be an autobiography, maybe or such. Like oh no, it. it's nothing so colourful. I promise you. <laughs> Not no, it's it's translating science again in a way that's meaningful. Well, it's definitely helpful to, I suppose, have science in a much more um, consumable way. Um, so, I suppose the last thing is just we might have. Well, hopefully, we'll have some of our IGS members listening. I don't know if you want to update them with anything or I suppose the big thing coming up would be. Yeah, I mean, we've got a We're going to have another public lecture. What we've done you with the IGS. This is these are some of the good things that happened with COVID. We had to repurpose ourselves and reinvent ourselves. That was brilliant. Um, and we've started these public lectures and it's in the spirit of what we've just been talking about. Yeah. Um, where you're trying to outreach science and take it out of the ivory holes and really embedding it in people's mindset. And co- hasn't COVID changed the way we look at that so well yeah. and, and how we embrace science and knowledge. 
um, as a community. I mean, I mean, my God, imagine talking about T-cells on radio <laughs> and people knowing what you were talking about three years ago. It would never have happened. So this is wonderful. And I find now that people are, are open to it. So that's what we've done in the IGS. We've started mm-hmm. these public lectures. We've got fantastic feedback. Next one's in September. And I'm hoping it, hoping it will be something really positive. Our plan is around brain health with a, a great expert speaking to brain health. And again, a very informed panel discussing it. So that, that's one something we've done. And then for our members and otherwise, you know, our first face-to-face meeting, annual scientific meeting, and it's going to be in the Sleeve Russell Hotel so that we can have an all-island meeting yeah. and make convenience for, for, for both sectors to join together and to explore the science around ageing in, in as positive a way as possible, but face-to-face. So we're really excited about that. Yeah. And we'll be making a number of awards at that to leaders who have really helped us through not just COVID, but contributed to our understanding of the ageing process and new science, new discovery with respect to ageing in Ireland. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's uh, November 3rd and 4th, I'm pretty sure. Yes. And yes. there's all the information for the conference is on the website as well. Um, so that's a wrap for today. So thank you so much for your time <laughs> and for covering half of everything there, my questions. Uh, so thank you so much, Professor Roseanne Kenny. Thank you, Adele, very much. <laughs>